Well, we come to this pivotal chapter in the book of Isaiah, and it occurs to me that, in fact, it's occurred to me this entire week that I am not really all that adequate to cover a chapter that's this important. It's arguably the most important chapter in the second half of Isaiah, probably in the book of Isaiah, and it's the clearest picture of Jesus that we get outside of the New Testament. And in fact, it's so clear of a picture that some people have called this the Gospel of Isaiah. This chapter has been called the Gospel of Isaiah. So outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have this picture of Jesus that is so clear that it's looking ahead 700 years to events that Isaiah had no way apart from the hand of God of knowing that would occur. The detail is, is astounding. So the passage begins by telling us that God's plan is in fact astounding. In fact, to use a modern slang statement, this is Isaiah's truth bomb to the people of his time. Now, since chapter 40, we have been looking at Isaiah's peek into the future. So chapters 1 through 39, he's been talking to the present, his present generation around 740 to 700 B.C. Now he's looking from chapter 40 on about 100 years into the future, and he's addressing a people that are going to be in captivity. Now some people will say, well, this must have been written after the fact because nobody can predict the future. Well, I have a very complex answer for that. Yes, they can. They can predict the future if the Spirit of God is revealing it to them because God is supernatural and he can reveal the future supernaturally to his prophets. Now, if you were to ask the people of Israel who are in captivity in Babylon, what's your big problem? What's the biggest problem that you're facing? They would say, duh, we're in captivity in Babylon. We need to go home. But Isaiah has been pointing out since chapter 40, and really before that, that the most serious problem that the people of Israel have is not that they're in captivity. The most serious problem they have is that they are separated from God because of their wickedness and sin. If you're taking notes, just jot down Jeremiah chapter 7. Read that chapter and you'll get a good idea of the kind of sin the people were involved in. Murder, stealing, lying, blasphemy, worshiping false gods. So they need a solution to their sin problem more than they need a solution to their Babylon problem. And that's what Isaiah has been trying to get across since chapter 40. And many times he said, despite all of the problems that you have, despite your wickedness, despite the fact that you are unable to help yourself, yet I am going to bring deliverance. So three times before this, he has talked about 
his servant who's going to bring deliverance. Now today, we are in the third, I'm sorry, we're in the fourth of four servant songs. So three times before, he's talked about this servant. Today is the last of these servant songs. And it's also the most detailed. And it's going to provide some very graphic details about how this servant is going to deliver his people. But the details are so startling, they're so crazy sounding, that the people don't receive it. In fact, they despise the message. They despise the servant. That's the irony here. God's solution is despised by the people. Now, the passage for today has five sections. So we can put the first picture up there. It's got five sections, and the way Hebrew poetry sometimes works is that you will have the first section and the last section will correspond to each other. Then the second section and the second to last section will correspond, third section, third to last, etc. In this case, we have five sections. So the first section and the last section, which are, all the sections are three verses, by the way. First section and last section talk about the exaltation and suffering. Exaltation and suffering. And there's summary chapter, or summary sections. Then sections two and four, so the second one and the second to last one, they discuss the servant and how people treated him. So they correspond to each other. Now, as we go through, we're getting more information. It's not like they're just saying the same thing, but they're covering similar subjects. And then section three is the middle section, which in Hebrew literature often means it's the focus section, the spotlighted section. And it's going to talk about how the servant delivers us. So part three is the central focus of that passage. That's verses four through six of Isaiah 53. I wish that the person who divided up these chapters, this happened long after it was written, had put chapter 53 starting back three verses earlier because really 52.13 goes together with chapter 53. So when I say Isaiah 53, I'm kind of referring to the previous three verses as well. So this passage paints a vivid picture of Jesus. What does Stephen Anderson say oftentimes? Let's talk about Jesus. Well, I'm going to spend the next however long in these five sections talking about Jesus because that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He's talking about Jesus. So you're going to have to bear with me a little bit because I'm not going to provide a lot of illustrations or stories. We're basically going to look at this picture of Jesus. And if you love Jesus, I hope this picture will strengthen your love for him. And if you do not love Jesus this morning, my prayer is that today you will come to love him and give your life to him. So the, the big idea, I think we have a big idea, is the servant will deliver us through suffering. That's the astonishing idea that the people had trouble 
understanding. So our, the first section now, the first section of the five sections, first three verses, says the servant will be exalted, but he had to suffer. The servant will be exalted, but he had to suffer. Now, I said before, the first and the fifth sections talk about exaltation and suffering, and they're summary sections. So just keep in mind that this is, this is one of the summary sections. So we learn in verse 13 of chapter 52, which really should be chapter 53, verse 1, but it isn't because this happened centuries ago and I wasn't asked. <laughs> the servant will be high, lifted up, and exalted, verse 13. Look at 13b with me. He, should be, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now the first two descriptions are high and lifted up. Now in Isaiah, those words are used only positively of the Lord, of God. So for instance, Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So that pair of words is used for God. When applied to man, those words are always negative. So for instance, in Isaiah 2, chapter 12, it talks about the Lord is against all that are high and lifted up, meaning in pride. So the servant is going to be high and lifted up. What's he saying? He's saying that this servant is on a par with the Lord. He is to be honored the same way that the Lord God is honored. Now, looking back on it, this is not a big surprise. We understand that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was honored the way that the Lord God the Father was honored. But this is a little bit astonishing to people at that time. The servant's going to be high and lifted up? You mean like God? Then it says in verse 14 that his appearance will create astonishment. Why will his appearance, why, why will he create astonishment with his appearance? Look at verse 14b. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. That's how the ESV puts it. Beyond man is what it literally says. He was marred beyond man. So it's, what it's saying is that he's going to have to suffer. People were astonished at that idea. He's going to have to suffer? That doesn't make sense. I mean, what's the, what's the world say about leaders? They're big and important. They don't have to suffer. In fact, they're victorious. And then finally in verse 15, we read that he will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? Well, this comes directly from the sacrificial system that the blood 
of the bull was brought in and sprinkled on the horns of the altar and it brought about atonement. It brought about forgiveness of sins. And so he will sprinkle many nations. He's going to bring forgiveness to the nations. And that's going to create astonishment. Like, what? What's that supposed to mean? So he's going to be, in this section, he's going to be exalted, he'll have to suffer, and he was going to sprinkle, he's going to bring forgiveness to many nations. Now remember, this is a summary section. The next three sections are going to unpack this. And so as we move into the next section, we're going to get some details of God's crazy plan, crazy in quotes. It's not really crazy, but it sounds crazy. So the second section says that the servant was unremarkable and he was rejected. Now remember, sections 2 and 4, they address the servant and how people treat him. So, section two, the servant was unremarkable and he was rejected. So, as we read a little while ago, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse one, who will believe? Now, two weeks ago in Josh Vincent's message, we learned in Isaiah 52.10, that the arm of the Lord was going to be strong. So Isaiah 52.10 says that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That sounds like a pretty strong promise. God is going to do something amazing and strong and the ends of the earth are going to see it. And the Israelites thought, and we're going to be the kingpins. We're going to be the people that that are like the seconds in command. Why will they have trouble then believing this? Who will believe, Isaiah asks. Why will they have trouble? Because, verse 2 says, that the servant was not impressive. Notice the shift of tense now. Verses 13 through 15 talk about what the, what the servant will do. Now he's talking past tense. Now there's a reason for this. He's talking about it as if it's already happened. 700 years in the future, he's talking about it as if it's already happened. I was going to shift back to future tense, tense at the very end, but right now we're looking at these events like the servant has already gone through this. The servant was not impressive. So verse 2 says that in, in the middle, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. It says he was like a tender plant or a root out of dry ground. I don't know how many people have tried to grow anything in Phoenix. Not easy. Not easy. In fact, most of the plants... Are, are, are so shriveled looking because they hold on to their water that they don't want you to get near them and they, they, they put stickers out. 
It's like the most hostile place I can imagine. This is what he's saying about the unimpressiveness of the servant. He's growing up in a place that's like a plant in a desert. It's not a very flattering idea, is it? Nazareth, his little backwater place. What, he's a carpenter? He's not a king? What's up with that? No beauty. This is not the world's perspective of a, of a successful leader. What do we think of when we think of a leader? Forceful, tough, domineering. How to win friends and influence people. How do you win friends and influence people? Get thrown in jail and get executed. You're not going to find that on any bestseller list of the top ten. But that's God's plan. And how did people react to it? Verse 3, they despised it. They rejected it. They said, this is worthless. It says in, in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Now that word for despised doesn't necessarily carry an emotional content to it. It's not necessarily, oh, I despise that guy. But it's more, it can be the idea that it's not even worth paying attention to. It's like you're not even worth my looking at you. You're worthless. It's like total disrespect. He was accounted as worthless, not relevant to my life. That's how he was treated. The end of verse 3 says, He was despised and we esteemed him not. So now we come to the punchline, and that's the third section. How is the servant going to do these amazing things that were promised earlier on when the Lord bears his powerful arm? Doesn't seem very powerful at this point, does it? So the third section then says the servant was pierced and crushed to bear our sins. Now remember the middle section is the focus section. So this is the, this is the spotlighted area of this entire servant song. Notice the emphasis on him and us in this section. I think I, yeah, the, the, the scripture's gonna be up there in a second. So no, just, just notice the difference between him and us as I read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So, in essence, we sinned, but he suffered. He was punished for us. This is the language of substitution. He was our substitute. So verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs. Another word for that would be sicknesses. 
and carried our sorrows or pains. The Hebrew words can also mean sickness and pain. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean physical sickness. It could also mean emotional, spiritual pain, sickness. So it can refer to loneliness, depression, hopelessness. And Jesus says that Jesus experienced those. He bore them in himself. So sometimes we think about Jesus experiencing physical pain, and he certainly did. But he also, in his life, leading up to his death, bore all the kinds of emotional pain that we experience. So he knows what loneliness is. He knows what depression is. He knows what sorrow is. He knows what those things are. And then verse 5 says, at the very end, and with his wounds we are healed. Now we come to verse 6 of this important section. And it tells us that we got lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. That talks about our will, our willingness to go astray. Now, sheep are pretty stupid. No disrespect to sheep. They just aren't all that smart. And we are like sheep in that we're not all that smart. But we're unlike sheep in that sheep don't care that they're not very smart. We actually think that we're pretty smart. So we're unlike sheep in that we think we've got it together. But Isaiah is saying, no, all we like sheep have willingly gone astray. We've used our brains, we've used our wills to go astray and reject God. Each of us has turned to his own way as opposed to God's way. And what does it say at the end of verse 6? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ was our substitute. So we got lost and Jesus punished Jesus. We were wicked and God put the punishment on Jesus. That's the language of substitution. Some people want to read the gospel accounts and say that Jesus was not our substitute. If Isaiah was trying to tell us something other than substitution, he did a very bad job of it. Jesus was our substitute. But in order to be our substitute, he had to be perfect. He had to be perfect. So now we come to the fourth section. The servant never sinned, and he was killed unjustly. Remember sections 2 and 4, they tell us something about the servant and about how he was treated. So now section 4, the servant never sinned, and he was killed 
unjustly. Now, first thing we learn about the servant in verse 7 is that he was silent. It says, like a, a sheep is silent before a shearer. It's actually like a sheep is silent before its butchers. So he opened not his mouth. Now, does that mean that he never spoke a word? No, he spoke a few words. But over a course of, what, 18 hours? Very few. He never spoke a word in self-defense in terms of trying to get away from the punishment. When people reviled him, he didn't revile them back. When somebody slapped him, he didn't slap them back. He accepted what God was bringing him through without complaint. He was a perfect sacrifice. We learn then that he was killed unjustly. Now that's the point. Um, he was killed unjustly in verse 8. He was taken away by oppression, it says. Then look at the middle of verse 8. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living? He was killed. He wasn't just whipped and let go. That's what Pilate wanted to do for him. But the Jews said, no, crucify, crucify. And so he died on the cross. We read that in all four Gospels. He gave up his spirit. He died for our sins. We also learn in verse 9 that he was without sin. Now, we learn in verse 9 something very interesting. If you're taking notes, you can write down Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60. Matthew 27, verses 57 through 60, because it says he made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man. The Hebrew could also be read, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and he was with a rich man. Who was, wait a minute, with wicked and a rich man? Yeah, Jesus was because we learn that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, asked for the body, took it down, put him in his own tomb. So 700 years before the fact, here's Isaiah predicting what was gonna happen. I think if you just needed one chapter, to demonstrate that the Bible's the word of God. You could just go to this one. But notice what it says about Jesus here. It says in, in, in the middle of verse 9, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now when we talk about violence, Jesus made it very clear that violence also includes violence inside your heart. So if you're angry with your brother without a cause, that's the same as murder. You just don't have the, the knife in your hand. It says Jesus did no violence, either externally or internally. So when there was a, a big traffic jam in, in Nazareth with all the donkeys getting in the way, he didn't get upset. I have to confess, on the way here this morning, somebody came buzzing out of Cactus Lane on I-17, and I almost got upset, and I said, nope, nope, I gotta preach about Jesus not getting upset this morning. <laughs> not today, maybe tomorrow, not today. <laughs> Jesus never had a violent thought 
internally or externally. He says he never, there was no deceit in his mouth. He never told a lie, not even a little lie, to get out of something, to get away from punishment. Can anybody say that they've never been unjustly angry or never told a lie? If you raise your hand, come and see me after the service, please. But Jesus could say that. He was without sin. He was the perfect sacrifice for us. Because he was a perfect sacrifice, perfectly obedient to God the Father, we learn in the next section that the servant will be victorious. So in section 5, the servant was crushed, but he will be victorious. Now remember we looked at section 1 and section 5 as saying similar things. They're going to talk about his exaltation and his suffering. So in this section, which is also a summary section, he was crushed, but he will be victorious. He'll suffer, but he will be exalted. The servant was crushed, but he will be victorious in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Notice the will of the Lord to crush him. God did that, and Jesus accepted it, the Son of God, as the Lord's will for us. So verse 10 says that he put him to grief, but notice what the last part of verse 10 says. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now wait a minute, I thought that he was dead. So in that previous chapter, previous verse, it said that, what about his generation, or verse eight, what about his generation? He never got married, he never had children. Now it says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is talking about a person who's alive, not dead. This is talking about the resurrection. So Isaiah, 700 years before, could look ahead and say, I don't understand this fully, but God is revealing that that servant is going to prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now verse 11 talks about what he's going to do for us. It says, in the, in the second part of verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So not only is he going to bring forgiveness, he's going to bring righteousness to a people who don't deserve righteousness. They don't even deserve forgiveness He's not only going to bring them back to square one or square zero, I guess, to the zero line. He's going to give them righteousness. By his knowledge, the righteous one, meaning Jesus, will make others righteous. How? The end of verse 11 explains that he shall bear their iniquities. And then finally, in verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
That's what victors do. This is the victory. He was crushed, but he's victorious. Victors divide the spoil. What happens to the people that get defeated? They go into slavery. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He identified with us. The final part of verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes present tense intercession for the transgressors. There actually is a switch in tense here. He bore the sin of many, he makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus today is praying for his people. That's what it says in Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, one who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Isaiah didn't understand that fully, but there it is. He predicted it. So if you've come to Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus Christ is praying for you right now. Now, you also have the right to pray to the Lord, and Romans 8 also says that the Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Then it goes on to say that Jesus himself is praying for us. So God helps us to pray, and Jesus is praying for us. There's one lesson that we can get from this. Now, I'm not, I've not focused on applications. As, as I said, we're, we've been painting this picture, kind of a dark picture, with light at the end of the tunnel about Jesus in this message. So what are a few lessons that we can apply? Well, we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, and he says something in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, I think that's going to be put up next as soon as the, uh, oh, there it is. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, having, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what do we learn from Isaiah 53 today? What are some lessons we can apply? Well, what does it mean to follow in his steps? So Jesus did all this stuff for us. We get this amazing picture of what Jesus did that I hope has stirred our hearts. So what does that mean for us? So how do we follow in the steps of this servant, this Jesus who suffered and died for us but also rose from the dead for us and is alive and is interceding for us today? Well, just a few suggestions. We can try to be patient with people who annoy us. I mean, I would hope that people would be patient with me when I annoy them, not that that ever happens. Don't ask my wife, don't ask my wife. Can I be more patient? Can I try to listen rather than talk back immediately? When somebody insults me, do I just want to insult them right back or do I just like back off? Somebody once described Christians as shock absorbers. Anybody ever heard that before? 
shock absorbers for the world. So rather than being like super balls, boom, we're like shock absorbers. Somebody wrongs us and we absorb the shock. So we can be, to follow Jesus, we can be less prone to lose our tempers when people or things like smartphones annoy us. We can do good even when people lie about us, mistreat us, or disrespect us. We can continue to do good towards them. Doesn't mean that you should never try to correct a lie. That's okay. But how do we do it? Is our heart to do good to that person or is our heart to get even with him and get revenge? Our natural response is we want to get revenge. We want to get back. But Jesus says, no, absorb it. Now maybe I know someone, maybe you know someone who's going through a difficult time. Can we perhaps try to encourage that person, send a text today, maybe get together with that person, or maybe write a letter? Do people do that anymore? Following Jesus, following in his step, does not mean perfection on day one. Sometimes we get discouraged because the same things happen over and over and over again. Reminds me of uh, Josephine March in the book Little Woman by Louisa May Alcott. She, she told her mother, this temper of mine, it's, it's terrible. I think I've got it under control and it breaks out again worse than ever. And I think all of us can sympathize with, with Josephine. Sometimes we think we've got control over something and then it just breaks out again worse than ever. So the point is that we're not going to be perfect on day one. This is a long-term race that we're running. It's a marathon. We need to look for progress over the long haul. Can I be a little bit more kind, a little bit more patient? And that'll add up over time. So Jesus is praying for you to help you make progress. Okay, so we've looked at the five sections of this message. And so we've seen that that Jesus was exalted and he suffered. We've seen that he was rejected. We've seen that he bore our sins, that in the fourth section, that that he's the one who bore our iniquities. And then finally, we've seen that he was victorious, that even though he was crushed, he will create a people, us, So all of us, all of us face times when we have trouble, pain, sickness. And at some point in our lives, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through those things. In fact, today some people are going through those kinds of things. Sometimes we have emotional scars that we feel like they're not healing. Sometimes we feel like I'm putting on a smile, but you know what? I'm barely hanging on. And if people knew what I was really going through, they probably wouldn't even want to be my friend. But see, Christians are called to be friends. 
to take up that gap, to reach out and say, you know what? I may not know what you're going through, but I'm willing to listen. But I do know that Jesus knows what you're going through. He experienced it all. The perfect Son of God was pierced and crushed for my sins and for your sins. He knows exactly what we're going through. And he offers strength to get through. Hebrews 4, 15 says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus knows what we're going through and receive grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this picture of Jesus that's so stark and that many will turn away from is the message that can save us. Thank you that you have done what was necessary to save us from our sins, that you have crushed Jesus, but that Jesus was victorious. And now he reigns and will return and make everything right. Father, thank you for all of those things. I pray that this picture will strengthen us and if there are people in this auditorium today who don't love you, that you would draw them to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.